0: Father, oh, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, uh, that this beautiful day that you've made. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you've given us. Lord, thank you that you've turned our hearts from delighting in what is evil. And we pray, God, that you would, uh, even now, Lord, continue to, to sanctify and continue to renew our hearts so that we would love what is good and what is right and, and what is pleasing in your sight only. Lord, thank you for... Uh, the glorious gospel that sets us free from the dominion of sin and one day will set us free from the presence of sin. And Father, we just uh, pray that as we continue to study your word and as we continue to talk about these important hermeneutical things, that you would uh, just enrich our understanding and our reading of scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, well, we are on um, the, the section, oh, sorry. Test, test, test. Am I out there, Robert? Yes, you are. Okay, thank you. We are on the section of biblical theology that deals uh, with the subject of hermeneutics. And we've already looked at a couple. I had a chance to run in here before everybody began uh, and kind of write some things up on the board just to remind us where we are. We talked about defining what biblical theology is And we talked about biblical theology basically being God's unfolding story throughout the entire Bible. That's the easiest way that we can describe biblical theology. And then how that overall overarching story informs our theology um, uh, regardless of where we are in the Bible or regardless of what topic we're looking at in Scripture. That overarching story should inform our reading of Scripture. And then we talked about hermeneutics, which that's where we are. And uh, remember, we're going to have three basic Roman numerals in biblical theology. And Roman numeral number three is going to be the different sections that we're going to cover uh, in doing biblical theology. So um, it doesn't look uh, necessarily like Genesis, uh, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, J- uh, Joshua. You know, we're not going to just go, go book by book. Some biblical theologies function that way. I figure, you know what? I don't think we'll get it, we'll we'll be able to do it all. Okay, it, not going to be that comprehensive, but we'll hit some of the main sections that I think are 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 really important for us to cover. Uh, but that's Roman numeral three. Today we're looking at hermeneutics, but we're talking about grammatical historical hermeneutics, and then I put and biblical theology. You know, just to kind of. Say how does it relate to biblical theology? So first of all, let's talk a little bit about the grammatical historical uh, approach. Sometimes some uh, hermeneutics manuals, they will talk about the grammatical, historical, literal approach to the Bible. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that before, right? Um, I'm not even comfortable using the word literal, and and, and today most hermeneutic textbooks aren't either, because obviously uh, the Bible possesses more than just literal language or literal uh, uh, scripture, things to be taken literal. What are some examples of some passages of scripture, or some books of scripture, or sections of scripture that may not be uh, may not be able to be taken literal? Anyone? Anybody? The book of book of some parts of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Some parts of Revelation is, is parts right. Of Daniel. Some parts of Daniel. So you could, both are talking about apocalyptic literature, right? <coughs> Prophetic the literature. The had a census, and the whole world was supposed to go. Okay, so so the u- the world was That's right. There. And so what you're describing there is the use of metaphor, right? Which is not exactly like what, you, what you're dealing with with apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is more of an imagery-based text, whereas what you're talking about is that the authors of Scripture can they can freely use metaphorical language to describe something, right? It's, uh, uh, the Jewish people were envious of Jesus, and they said, Behold, the whole world is going after him now, <laughs>
1: right?
0: Does that mean <laughs> all of planet Earth was literally proceeding to Jerusalem? Of course not. Uh, that's a, a metaphorical um, literary style. Yes, sir? John 10, where you John say, I am the door? I am the door. Does Jesus have hinges and a doorknob? You know, of course not. <laughs> outstretched arm. But his arm. arm. God's going to cover His people with the wing, with His with wings, right? Does God have wings and feathers? I mean, uh, of course not. So, so there you see that. I mean, the Bible is uh, comprised of literally probably dozens of literary genres. So here we're talking about mm-hmm. literary genres, right, of Scripture. So genres of Scripture include apocalyptic. Just help me out here, guys. Oh, no, no, no. I had it right the first time, didn't I? It's kind of like the apocrypha, right? Right. Apocalyptic. What else does it have? Maybe poetic. Right. What else does it have? What is didactic? Teaching. Teaching. That's right. Didact, did, uh, didactic is would be like the Book of Romans, right? Where uh, there, uh, the author is not necessarily uh, interested in poetry, right? Uh, He's not looking to uh, engage in Hebrew poetry style of writing. Um, Also, how about this? Maybe not strict poetry. When we think of poetry, what are we thinking of mainly in in the Bible? So, like the Psalms, right? Um, But also, you also have what's known as wisdom literature, And what does wisdom wisdom literature comprise in Scripture? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, That's right, Psalms are even thrown along in the wisdom literature. Um, Is there any wisdom literature in the New Testament? Wow, you guys are good. (laughs) The book of James in the New Testament is typically um, said to kind of follow the wisdom literature pattern. Uh, One of the reasons that you know that is because... Like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like Proverbs, there really isn't sort of there isn't all the time a a signal as to why does the author go from this subject to the next subject. There's like no warning. He, he's he, one minute he's over here, next minute he means on the other side of the universe, you know, talking about something completely different. Same thing with uh, the book of James. He, he he shifts from one subject to the next sometimes without warning. And there are drastic changes. Um, and, and, you know, commentators and exegetes, they try so hard to try to theorize some sort of logical ch- shift in, uh, in, in the context. But I think a lot of that does have to do with James being committed to, like, a wisdom style of writing. Yes, sir? Does the Hebrews as well speak of wisdom? Sure. Well, all scripture speaks of wisdom. Yeah. But wisdom proper is a category of, of a literary genre. Right? In other words, a style of writing. Right. So James fits into a particular style of writing that other books of the Bible do not. Of course, all Scripture, as uh, Timothy tells us, is inspired of God, profitable instruction, correction, and righteousness, so the man of God would be fully equipped, lacking nothing. You know, All of Scripture is profitable. All of it is inspired of God, regardless of what genre that's in. And that's very important to note, right? That just because God is using different genres, how about this? Parables, right? This is something that Jesus used throughout his teachings. And parables are those stories that he uses uh, to make a great theological point. Um, But these parables, they have their own character. They have their own nature to them. Uh, for example, if you strain the details of a parable too much, then you twist the parable out of its context and, and, and you can really damage the point of the parable. For example, this is a classic one that you might hear skeptics or atheists say, you know, Jesus said that the smallest seed is the mustard seed, right? And they say, oh, that's not the smallest seed. He made a scientific error in his analogy, <laughs> right? And they jump up and down on that, right? And it's like, well, of course. If they'd understood the literary genre in which that was spoken, which is in parable language, they would understand that parables do not follow a strict scientific code. Well, really, none of the Bible does, right? I mean, the Bible's not trying to follow 21st century post-enlightenment scientism, right? That's not what the Bible is written for. Um, This is actually something that we're going to talk about when we get to protology, but uh, the study of the first things of the Bible, really the first three chapters of Genesis, but that Genesis chapter 1 and the days of creation are not written for the purpose of refuting 21st century evolutionary models. That's not what Genesis 1 was written for. Now, does it have that capacity? Everybody's like, of course it does. <laughs> we don't want to let that go. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, I think it does. Um, I think especially if you try to be a theistic evolutionist. Everybody know what that is? right? It's the idea that God used evolution to bring the world about. right? You get in really big trouble if you try to dabble in theistic evolution because uh, what you have in the the, the days of creation are actually backwards uh, in terms of uh, what's happening in the evolutionary models. Evolution teaches all life originated out of the sea. The Bible says there was already land life before there was sea life. So you either you're either gonna have to go with the flow of God or go with the flow of Darwin. I mean, which you know, it really does. Even Darwin said I do not to jump up and down on Darwin, you know, but even Darwin said his method necessarily indicated that implied that you must reject Christianity in order to adopt he even made statements like that, that he understood it was a rejection of revelation as we know it. You know. Um So you have these kind of literary uh, things going on in, in, in Scripture, and that's why it's important to appreciate what the Bible is. It's apocalyptic literature, it's poetic literature, it's didactic literature, it's wisdom literature, it's parables. But when we get to the grammatical, historical method of interpretation, you're really touching upon an element of exegesis, right? And what does exegesis mean? Pull out, of the text. Out. pull out, take out, lead out. Well, what does that mean? When we say take out or pull out, what are we saying? Explain. To Not explain? You're approaching the words in such a manner of they mean what they say and they say what they mean. Okay. Not taking anything out of the text and what's there. Not taking anything out of text but what's there. Okay. So the opposite of this would be, ice Jesus, ice Jesus, right? Uh, so we have in Greek two prepositions, right? That's that's where this is, that's where these two words are coming from. Either you have the Greek ek or the Greek uh, eis. So that's that's where these two words come from. You can almost see it in English, right? Ek. <laughs> and ice, this is an S, right? Um, so, what, what does this preposition mean? Ek. Out. Out. of. Right? What does ice mean? Into. Right? So, you hear people, you know, bagging on each other on blogs oh, you're eisegeting the text. <laughs> right? What they're saying is you're putting a foreign meaning into the text that is not there. Right? So. We want to avoid eisegesis at all costs. So this is where the grammatical historical method of interpretation is really, really good, is that it is leading us to to come to a passage of Scripture. And let's talk about, quickly, let's talk about how do we interpret a passage of Scripture. I think I've done this before. But when you have a passage of Scripture, and you have, um, you know, let's, let's do this, right, um... And then, let's say this is the whole little paragraph sign, and another paragraph begins. When you have a passage of Scripture, well, let's just do this. Let's just go to the Bible. Let's go to, um, oh, I don't know. Let's go to, let's go to uh, Colossians chapter one, okay? Colossians chapter one, just to see this, right? As uh, epistles are really, really great for showing us how to do a systematic exegesis. Because they're they're laid out for us so neatly and packaged so so neatly that, that that what you want to do the very first thing that you want to do in the exegetical task, okay, using a grammatical historical um, uh, method is that you want to identify the paragraph. You want to identify the paragraph or what interpreters call the pericope, the pericope. That's that unit of thought right that is about a paragraph level. You have different units of thought in the Bible. You have the, you have the, the, the pericope, right? And then you have the, uh, the sentence level, and then you have the clause level, even the phrase level. Right? You've got phrases in the Bible, and then you have words in the Bible. So this is, this is the way that exegetes do their work. They identify what is the paragraph. So that's one paragraph, that's another paragraph. Verses 3 all the way down to verse 8 is one paragraph. And the most Bible translations now make it pretty easy to be able to identify pericopes. Mine has a bold printed verse. Does yours have something like that? It has a bold printed verse to show you. Verse three begins a new section, if you would, a new, um, a new pericope, a new, a new phrase, a new paragraph, and it ends at verse eight. Verse nine begins another paragraph. Uh, this is not a perfect science, of course. It's better to do this directly out of the original languages, but like I said, most of your uh, uh, Good Bible translations today, they will do a good job of doing this for you. Um, and and, and more, more, more likely than not, when I'm teaching, for example, through Hebrews, I'm following my translation. And I'm, I'm following the paragraphs of my translation. I'm not trying to make it any more difficult than it needs to be. Uh, unless I see something within the paragraph that I think, I got to focus on this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I just got to focus just on that. Um, then I might split it up in two but when you get to the when you get to the paragraph the next thing that you want to identify of course is sentences sentences so you start identify you know how to outline this paragraph so you would take a paragraph like this and then maybe on a scratch piece of paper you would write down the sentences that you can identify that are in that paragraph So you see what you're doing? You're starting to break up the the text into smaller and smaller units of thought. When you get to the sentence level, then you start identifying different phrases and clauses. For example, verse 3. The sentence is, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Stop. Stop. That would be one sentence. And then because would be kind of like a coordinating conjunction there, okay? But then within that first sentence, verses 3 and 4, you have many clauses and phrases. You have, we give thanks to God. That is a clause. That's a clausal unit. And and within that clausal unit, right, we give thanks. Thanks uh, to God. We give thanks to God. Within this clause, you, you then can split it up even further. Then you have from this clause, then you also can split it up this way. This is the actual way that they would do it. They would identify the subject. They would identify the verb. And they would identify the object of the verb. Right, The object of the verb. Right, And then, we give thanks, and then, here's the thing, why does he give thanks? And then he says many other things. But as that other sentence comes down, watch this, then you can add, because. See how that modifies that? So, this, this uh, conjunction, this explanatory clause then, why do we give thanks? Because. Right? He says, of the hope that we have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see what I'm saying? And that's simple sentence diagramming that you do throughout the whole Bible. And this is what people rack their brains on it. <laughs> You know, and It's great doing it in English, but in Greek it's much better. <laughs> that's why you should learn a little bit of Greek, because you can start sentence diagramming. I tell you what, if you just spend the next two years, just just waste your life on the biblical New Testament Greek. You'll be able to do this from the Greek Bible. There's nothing better than that. You know, uh, I, I literally, when I learned Greek many years ago, and to the best of what I know it now, we were given an assignment out of Colossians, and we were to go from the book of Colossians. I think I was telling Lynn this the other day. And, and, and our duty was to observe as many exegetical insights from the text as possible. So we observed that uh, the subject was plural we observed that the giving of thanks was, oh, I don't know what you could say about the giving of thanks. Um, We give thanks, I don't know, we could say that the giving of thanks is circumstantial, based on his circumstances, and that the direct object is God. And so the direct object of the verb here in this case is God. Just little little things like that, that just make you... um, that make you stand in awe of the way that God wrote the Bible. I mean, it really is. And then, then to know that you can do this with the entire Greek New Testament and you never come upon one single contradiction, one single a uh, uh, construction in the Greek that is harmful to the gospel, that's amazing. For example, if anywhere in the entire Bible the Apostle Paul were ever to say that salvation is on the basis of faith, that's a particular construction in the original language. If he were to ever go to that construction, which is the word faith, plus a certain, a certain kind of noun case, which I think it's the accusative, then all of a sudden, you would make faith the basis of salvation, instead of what? Grace. Grace. But never in the entire Greek New Testament does an author of the Bible slip into the accusative use of of faith in that particular construction and make faith the basis of our salvation. Incredible. Meticulous superintendence of the Holy Spirit over the Word of God. Uh, That's just one example that comes to mind. Um, So, um, you can see that as you're progressing here, uh, you're getting into... Uh, The grammar. So this is all grammar. From sentences, then you get into the clausal level. From clauses, then you get into phrases. What is a phrase? A phrase would be like, in Christ. That is a prepositional phrase. See that? That is how small the phrases of Scripture get. You got verbal phrases, participial phrases, you have adjectival phrases where a verb modifies a noun or a participle modifies a noun. Or you have verbal fra- uh, uh, adverbial phrases where you have either nouns or participles modifying a verb. That's, all of that is contained in scripture. And uh, this is where a grammatical historical method of interpretation is very, very good. Because it takes us directly to, until we get from all the way to the words... The very words themselves, and when we get to the words themselves, we're dealing with a couple of things. With words, the words of the New Testament, the words of the Bible, of the Old Testament, then you're interested in what? You're interested in, right? You're interested in etymology. What does etymology mean? Anyone? The root of the word. Where does it come from, Right? You can find this even in the Westminster Dictionary, right? Sometimes you'll look up a word in the West... or uh, Excuse me, in the... Um, yeah, yeah. Westminster, Merriam's... Webster's, Webster's Dictionary. There you go. You can find that in Miriam's Dictionary. My mom's dictionary. <laughs> and it'll say, 17th century Latin. What? Right? It's giving you the etymological origin of the word. But when you do word studies in the Bible, check it out you also then have to begin to ask the wider questions. How is that word used, um, uh, let's say, uh, extra-biblical, extra right? Extra-biblical use. When we find the word outside of the Bible, how do they use it? How did the Greeks use it? How did the, how did the Jews use that word in other areas? of, let's say, in commerce or something like that, right? Um, When Paul says in the book of Philippians to the Philippian church, no one, what did he say, no one shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. What I found out from my study of that is that that word in extra-biblical contexts, that phrase, giving and receiving, was actually used and written on ancient receipts, And so what what commentators suggest is that what Paul is saying is that the the Philippian church had a meticulous um, accountability system with the Apostle Paul, so much so that they kept receipts, that they kept an account, in other words. They had an account of everything that Paul did financially with that church. What does that say, right, To, to the churches, right? We need to have accountability financially for everything that we do. You know what I'm saying? And I praise God in our church. We do have meticulous accountability for financial things. And uh so just just a little glimpse. And then once you talk about extra biblical things, then you you ask about uh the canonical usage of that word, which means how is that word used in all of Scripture? Right? So the word um so the word uh let's say um flesh how does the word how is the word flesh used in all of the bible well you have dozens of entries of how the word flesh can be used in the bible Uh, and then you have to boil it down to from the context of the whole bible let's say you're studying in the new testament well how is it used strictly in the new testament how is the word strictly used in the new testament and then from there where do we go from there Let's go over here. After we after we try to ascertain how is this word, let's say the word flesh, how is it used in the New Testament, we have still half a dozen definitions still, right? Then we ask how is that word flesh, how is that used in the let's see here, the corpus of the author. What is the corpus of the author? The writings, right? The, the body of literature that he wrote. So if you're thinking of Paul, then you're thinking, how is the word flesh used in Paul's letters? How does he use it in all of his writings? And then, of course, from there, we ask the question, how is it used in, um, in, in the individual books or letters? So how does he use the word flesh in Romans, that might be different from the way that he uses it in other sections of Scripture, right? And then we ask, how is it used in the immediate context, right? The immediate context, in that verse, how does he use it? How, what, out of all those uses that are possible, which one is he using in that verse? Now, let me just, you know, so that you don't get overwhelmed... A lot of this stuff we do by nature, right? I mean, we all do this almost subconsciously. It's not like each one of us, when we read our Bible, we pull this out, (laughs) right? And we're like, okay, what did Pastor Miller say? Okay, clausal sentence, right? We kind of do this naturally by reading the Bible and having experience with the Bible and hearing the Bible preached. But when you come down to, let's say, a particular uh, passage of Scripture that's crucial for uh, understanding uh, some doctrine or, or, or something like that I mean this becomes very very important right this is where you might want to drill down deep and pick up a technical commentary pick up a lexicon and start reading uh, you know what you know some of this information so that you can get a proper interpretation okay so all of this really has to do with grammar the aim of of the grammatical part of interpretation is this syntax. What is syntax? How something is being used. How it's being used? In a certain culture or, dy- or dynamic. Yeah. Anybody else? The syntax. It's used. What's that? The order in which it's used. Mm hmm. Kind of. Kind of close. I mean, not everybody's, you know, it's not so much um, that you guys are wrong. Syntax is important because syntax is asking the question, how do the words of the Bible relate to each other? How does one word modify another word? How does one sentence modify the other sentence? You see what I'm saying? That is the goal of exegesis. That's the goal of the grammar so when you take Greek, for example, and you do year one and two of Greek, what you're learning is this: you're learning how to how to read it and write it and spell it and, and sound and sound it out, right? So sights and sounds, and then you're also you're also learning uh, different uh, forms, how that word has different forms in the original. But your first couple years of Greek, they don't or Hebrew, they don't teach you the relationship of those words with one another in the text. That is a different issue. That has to do with syntax. And this is the goal. And this is much easier, by the way. <laughs> when you're studying the first couple of years of Greek, believe it or not, that's the hard stuff. Because you've got to learn all these different forms of one word. You know, like, oh, leges, leges, leomen, leomen, lesuntas. Le, 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 you know, all of these... Different paradigms of one word. Oh, there's one word. It took me two hours to memorize that one paradigm for that one word. And uh, my Greek textbook used to fly across the room. (laughs) Never to be picked up again. I would vow late in the night I wouldn't learn one more participial paradigm. Remember, Trish? (laughs) Trish received the brunt of a lot of that. (laughs) Trish actually took Greek with me. And Trish is such a prolific test taker. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, she would get A's on all her tests, and me, I'm like happy with a B or a C. You know what I mean? And she's like acing, acing, acing everything. Yeah, but you're a prolific retainer. I don't <laughs> know <what> I <laughs> yeah, I don't think Trish really uses it much anymore, but uh, <clears throat> that's okay. That's all right. Um, Okay, let's get to the historical part because that's just as important. Okay, right? Um, we can learn what is the grammatical historical method of interpretation from the words. So next is history, right? From the historical aspect, what are they talking about when they're talking about history? What is the historical part of it? You know? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's part of it, right? What place in history is that particular book being written, right? So there, what you just articulated is more like chronology. So it's like, is that book written in the Old Testament, and the New Testament? Is that book written, you know, um, is that book talking about, um, you know, was that book written uh, before or after uh, the destruction of the temple? That could be a... Pivotal question, right? Um, is when is that book written? Is that book written, you know, uh, before or after the Babylonian captivity? That might influence the way that you read the prophets. You know what I mean? Would culture also fit in yeah, yeah. So when you're talking about culture, you're not just talking about the time of writing, right? But you're also talking about the situation situation, what the uh, scholars of the academics would call the, uh, uh, the Leben. Have you ever heard this phrase, the Leben? I don't know German, but the Zitzenleben literally means the situation of life. And so a lot of scholars will mention the Leben, the situation of life, or the Zipsen Jesus, the situation of Jesus, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' life. That type of thing, right? Is it some Paul, is it some you know, John, all of that, Johannine situation, all of that. And so we're, what we're asking is what were the circumstances surrounding the writing of the book of Philippians or Romans? What was going on in two in, 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 in two areas, right? The situation affects two two uh two people. The author, right, and the audience. Oops. A little bit off the rails there. My wife is always telling me, "Slow down in Sunday school." She's right. The author and the audience. We we want to find out not only is Paul writing from prison, is he on a missionary journey? What's going on with the? Is he suffering? Uh, is he at the end of his life? Is he early on in his missionary journeys when this was written? Right. What about the audience? What's going on with the Romans? When he's writing the book of Romans, what's going on with the Colossians? What are they facing? What's going on with the Ephesians when the Apostle Paul is writing? So, um, yeah, quickly, just turn to uh, Ephesians for a second, okay? In Ephesians, what you find is that um, over and over, you find a reference to this very, very interesting word in the book of Ephesians, which is... The mystery. You ever read that word in Ephesians? Let's. uh, I'm thinking, like for example, Ephesians. Oh, Ephesians chapter. Isn't it chapter three? Chapter three, verse three. Mm -hmm. Chapter one, verse nine. Right. Chapter Chapter five. Wow! So here we go. This is exactly what I wanted. So you have the mystery, right? This word, mystery being used all over Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 9. What was it? Chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 5, what? Chapter 5, what now? 32. So what was going on situationally in the life of the Ephesians that makes the Apostle Paul need to use the word mystery over and over and over? In the Greek word, in the Greek word, musterion. Anybody know, by the way? Anybody have any idea? Why? Yes, sir? Oh, I thought he raised his hand. No? There was a lot of, um, idol worship. Acts tells us that. Because remember how they call it, the city of, what is it, Artemis or something like that? What is it? Well, the, the, the idol Artemis, the, the, the Greek goddess Artemis. Yeah, so there's a lot of you're not, you're not entirely wrong. Right? So what we know from Ephesus is this. Is that in Ephesus there were mystery cults. There were cults that prided themselves and, and their operative word was mysterion. And so the Apostle Paul is correcting the pagan notions of mystery mm-hmm. by showing that true spiritual mystery is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. See, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy. He's a professor at a Biola. He did like the. He did so much work on this. Clinton Arnold. Uh, if you ever get a commentary on Ephesians, you have to get one by Clinton Arnold. Uh, Clinton Arnold. Who does he write? Uh, one on Ephesians 4. I think he did the Zondervan exegetical commentaries, Are the kind of big square ones. Anyway, um, Clinton Arnold did extensive research into these mystery cults and, and showing us the, 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 not the rich, but you know the, the extensive background that this had in Ephesus at the time of Paul's writing. Little things like that that inform the situation. Very, very good, right? Very, very good to help us to understand what is going on. Also, so then in the situation, I guess we could what we could say here is that what we're looking for is several things with the situation. We are looking for uh, a socio-political, economic uh, sort of um, background to the book, and we can even add to that. As many do, spiritual. In other words, just like Zitzim Levin says, what is the situation in life in that, in that region of the world? Whether you're talking at the Romans, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians. Boy, is the situation in Corinthians important? Very much so. Corinthians, a port city known for its extensive debauchery and its immorality. And Paul is writing to them principles on marriage and principles of holiness and principles on immorality, et cetera, et cetera. That becomes a massive historical detail that's important for the Corinthian book, the Corinthian letters, you see. Any questions or comments or anything? Sure? Come on, guys, don't be shy. I think the last couple weeks I've had several of you guys tell me you know, I was going to ask something, but please ask something. <laughs> you know, don't shy away from it. There are no dumb questions. You want to take us in a different direction? You know? So maybe like, yes, sir? maybe take a second just to uh, just to contrast, I guess, a grammatical and historical from like what you, what you hold to, you know? Yeah, that's the next or two weeks. <laughs> That's just, what we're going to do. Just so it's clear that you're not saying this fourth is like the only way... Oh, no, no, not at all, right? Yeah. So, grammatical, historical method, and biblical theology. So, it's almost like we're asking the question, the relationship between the two, what is it? See what I'm saying? So, how do we do biblical theology incorporating a grammatical, historical method... Um, How does that affect our biblical theology? Now, this is where I'm going to get a little controversial, okay? But this is important because we have to talk about the limitations, the limitations of the grammatical historical method. What the grammatical historical method is asking us to do is this. It's asking us to get back to the authorial intent of the letter. And what classically has been done in the utilization of this method is that what is being told to the interpreter is that you must empty yourself of any preconceived theological presuppositions or notions that you may have uh, in order to get an objective grammatical historical understanding of the Bible. And so this is especially important when we get to the Old Testament. Because, um, matter of fact, I just had a conversation with this, with a friend, about this very thing. And we were debating each other, in a friendly debate, how to interpret the Old Testament. And I threw out there that the Old Testament is to be interpreted in light of the New Testament. That's about as controversial of a statement as I'm going to make. Some of you are like, why is that controversial? (laughs) It's controversial because in the history of interpretation, what hermeneutics has tried to do is to try to say, look, we need to get back to brute history. Instead of importing all this theology into your historical analysis of the Bible, first just try to determine what is the historical situation of the Bible, what do the Hebrew words of the Old Testament mean by what they say, but don't assume anything in the process, okay? Um, So that is known as a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic only, only, right? Where I would say the grammatical, historical, hermeneutic has its limits because the Bible is not just a human document, is it? The Bible... Is even more than a human document. It is what? By God. It is inspired of God. That's what it says, right? It is supernatural. Um, the Bible everywhere tells us that God Himself is the author of Scripture, right? So beyond the human agent, is the divine author that stands behind the text. Um, this led Cornelius Van Til on an apologetics level, so different here, but what he said I thought was great. He says, he, he, what he said was something to the effect of this. He says, Trinitarian theology must inform our interpretation everywhere. So what he's saying is that, what is the Bible? The Bible... It, remember, we already defined biblical theology as, at least partly, the self-disclosure of God deposited in the Bible. So what the Bible is, is it's God disclosing himself to us. Scripture is, is telling us who God is. Uh, scripture is not, it is not like the secular historians of the world would want us to think, that it is simply a brute history divorced um, from theology. Uh, uh, You know, this is what happened during the Enlightenment, especially Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant is an important figure in in philosophy because he comes close to Christian epistemology. Let me slow down here for a second. (laughs) Immanuel Kant, which he lived in the 17th, 1700s, I believe, late 1700s, he basically said, in order to discover truth, you have to be honest about your presuppositions. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Right. And so, uh, other presuppositional apologists picked that up and said, you know, uh, Immanuel Kant was actually right about that, but the way he got there is wrong, and his conclusions are wrong. But what Immanuel Kant said was, history... Is devoid of theology, so we just have to interpret history as a as a uh, as a non theological succession of events. We cannot assign any divine meaning to history. That's placing too much into what history is. But you see, this is where Van Til says no. What you have at that point. Is a pretended neutrality where man espouses to be neutral in his philosophy and his knowledge, his epistemology. And what Van Til says, of course, right, is they're not neutral. No one is neutral. Immanuel Kant approached the subject of history with his set of presuppositions that history is a non divine, you know, successive series of events. <laughs> that is a philosophy. It's a fully developed philosophy. Now here's a question for us. As Christians, are we even allowed to do this? Not, not this method, but to interpret history that way? No. What passages come to mind when you, when you say no? Besides the fact that the Bible tells us not to, but <laughs> what, what passages specifically might come to mind to tell you that you cannot interpret history as a secular, non theological, non-divine thing. Yes, ma'am. Well, not not particularly properly, but you know, god God's of things prophecy, you know, that changeful donut, you know, I don't see how you can make those documents without theology because God is the one who said it would want to happen. Yeah, because uh that that betrays the self-disclosure of God, right? It is not interpreting the Bible based on what it claims. It does not claim to be a objective history of humanity. It claims to be the very history of God, the redemptive history of God. So it flies in the face of the Bible's own claims. Yes, sir? I would say uh, one particular passage that comes to mind for me with regard to, um, you know, interpreting history from a Christian perspective is that we are you know our minds are renewed day by day from Romans 12 1 and 2 for instance yeah that you know we're you know we're transformed in our mind and in our thinking to be that's to right in a Christian way that's, that's actually that's a good our, point when you have the mind of Christ right. do you think Christ interprets the Bible in a all theological fashion meaning no theology involved Every, everywhere in scripture that he's uh, I was going to say First 1 Corinthians 10.5 that we are destroying speculations and every lofty, and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge raised, raised against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ excellent every, every aspect of our epistemology every thought is to be brought under the obedience of Christ the, the, the other verse that I was thinking about is First Peter 3.15 you got that Trish? We are setting him apart. Setting apart Christ Yeah. As Lord. The mind says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you yet with gentleness and reverence. So what is the very first thing that you do before you begin to explain Christianity? And I would involve history with Christianity because Christianity is history. It's, you can't divorce the two. The very first thing that you have to do is you have to submit yourself to the lordship of Christ. <laughs> right? That's a, that's a theological presupposition that we must begin with. Never, ever, 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 ever when your atheist friend, neighbor, or coworker, or whatever asks you, okay, let's just set the Bible aside. Let's just think rationally about this. Right? Let's just think logically for a second. Just, just talk to me like a man. Just put just the Bible aside for a second. <laughs> right? How many of you have had that experience, by the way? Yeah. So I've had that experience many times. Set the Bible aside. Let's just be reasonable. <laughs> right? And of course, as some would even point out, it is immoral for the Christian to set his Bible aside in the attempt. To try to bring his neighbor to the knowledge of God. It is impossible, right? Yes, sir. That is what it brings out. It's impossible, like you said, it's impossible because Jesus came and he is the living Word. In the book, first chapter of John, where he talks about the I am, the flesh became, the Word became flesh. You yeah. So how could you deny that as contradicting him? Yeah, that's right. And himself as well. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, that's right. So, Immanuel Kant was right about getting to your presuppositions. The problem was he didn't realize or he didn't understand the nature of, of neutrality, that it's false. Neutrality is not possible. Because he probably asserted his own presuppositions. Of course, to that that's right. Yes, sir. What well, Isaiah 46, verse 10 also fit the bill of. Not I think so. Yeah, I think what that Yeah, I think I know what that says. Go ahead. Scripture or what's in scripture yeah. apart from God. The part that I'm thinking of the most it says my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure and so he's saying any the things that occur it's my will being done and he's so he can't, that's he can't actually a, that. gr- a great text to show that what God is saying there is that he is sovereign over history and a matter of fact that I think it's that verse it goes on to say uh, that that was the challenge that God put to the pagans Tell me the former things if you know them. Or even and tell me the things that are to come. Right? He, he, he challenges them because paganism, two things. Paganism cannot adequately account for history. They have a false history of humanities, number one. Number two, they are impotent to declare the future. Right? So God reigns supreme over the realm of the historical. And so... <coughs> That's why well, the, 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 the grammatical historical interpretation has its limits. We're not just asking of a book of the Bible, what was the human author's historical situation? We also are asking, like somebody already alluded to, uh, wh- where is that book situated in the redemptive historical developments of the Bible? Okay, And we're going to get into much, much more uh, of that. I didn't even once again i didn't even scratch the surface i just got you all stirred up and you know hopefully we can go to worship and you know declare our praises for the god of history right okay let's go to worship guys thanks <laughs> Well, he's yeah. talking yeah. about, you can't use the Bible to create the virus. Because I brought up the first Corinthians 15. He said, show me everything that Jesus actually that says. Paul says, fine, but people saw so it. they like, you can't use the Bible. I'm like, because you're presupposing that it isn't historical cool. and uh, mm-hmm. That's right, Mm -hmm. that's right, that's right. So can you use not-theistic thought in order to establish atheism? Yeah, Yeah. It's It's funny. I'm sorry. No, like they have, like, their standard for morality is, like, they say society. And when when I challenged him on that, I was like, show me how the Holocaust is. And then he goes, well, in the Bible, yeah, you know, God, God eliminate <laughs> sure. like, yeah, it. I'm like, from the real world, why is that in your own place? <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. That's like, that's right. Don't have, what does a bad start care about morality? But he doing a video. He thinks I got somebody helping me answer his questions.